Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil and gas pricing, uh, I have two reports. Uh, One is that the price of oil continues to be pretty good. Uh, there is an oil minister from Oman who was part of a Gulf conference, Gulf Arab conference on alternatives. And, uh, in the press conference following the conference, he made the following, uh, observation. He said, we are sovereign oil companies. You know, he's talking about Saudi Ramco and, and Kuwait Petroleum and, and, uh, and uh, Adnoc and all the sovereign oil companies have to be careful not to focus too much of our capital budget on alternatives because we know that the major companies are increasingly, you know, BP and Shell and Exxon investing in power and renewable power rather than investing upstream. He says sooner or later, if we're not careful, we might create $200 oil. Uh, it pretty much, his comment went pretty much unremarked on, but uh, in the subsequent uh, several days, I've, I, I know everyone I know in the oil business uh, read his comment. No one really thinks it's going to happen, but the dynamics that have been established definitely put it in the realm of possibility. And no one seriously thinks that we're going to see more than continuation of current pricing and maybe somewhat more in having seen $20 oil. Uh, recently, we're all fairly cautious, but it's something to keep in mind. Uh, on natural gas, there's a little more activity. The natural gas price in uh, Asia, North Asia, and Europe is in the 20s, and this is at a time of year. I mean, they have the same seasonal pattern we do, so uh, October, November are generally considered to be shoulder months, uh, just like uh April, May are. And what a shoulder month means in the Northern Hemisphere is that it's not winter anymore, and yet it's not warm summer. So your, your, your electricity demand, generally your gas demand should be lower. Um, the, uh, there's a pattern here in the U.S. Uh, I mean, our, our, uh, our Henry Hub price is over $5. Out two years, it's $3, which is like a lot of backwardation. And, the LNG futures market is pretty illiquid, but you see the same amount of backwardation. Uh, I asked an old friend of mine this morning who I was on a regular scheduled conference call with in the investment side. Um, I said, because this, this fellow has, has been preferring gas equities to oil equities for the last year or so, I said, what would happen if the backwardation disappeared? And you had something like, you know, four and a half or five dollars uh, flat, or I said, you know, I suppose it was even six dollars flat for the next five years. What would be the impact on the gas equities that you have have uh, invested in and continue to hold? And uh, the answer is uh, that obviously they have more cash flow. Uh, the pattern that you need to pursue as an upstream company now 
is don't spend all your cash flow and have unit production growth, which is a very high standard to make. He said a very interesting thing. He said if there was increased activity, uh, you would be driving up costs somewhat. But he actually thought that the increased cash flow, because when, when your current price is $5, everyone's hedged. So people are maybe making $5 with a third of their gas and two-thirds of their gas is hedged. His view was that behavior by the upstream companies uh, and, and gas companies in, 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 in our market are mostly, uh, mostly Parcells companies. Uh, the uh, EQT, Antero, Southwestern Range, uh, CNX, um, the uh, CHK uh, probably wouldn't change their behavior too much. Uh, they would have more cash flow and uh, they might have earlier dividends or more debt pay down. But uh, he had a very interesting reaction. And he, more than me, spends time with these companies. Uh, 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 and uh, I, I think he may be right. So uh, the good news is for gas producing companies and or for oil producing companies, the diamond max, et cetera, is that this behavior of being careful with spending will continue no matter what the commodity price is. I think that's very good news for people who hold uh, equities in, in both companies. The $20 uh, LNG price, I mean, think of it. I mean, if you buy gas in Louisiana for $5 and it costs you $2 to liquefy and a dollar to get it to Europe, uh, you're $8, you have $12 profit. That's not a sustainable situation. Something will happen there. Uh, uh, either demand will go down. Uh, it, it is not sustainable. It, it will. It, that that is not going to continue to be the case for the next 12 months, and it will not necessarily pull up U.S. gas prices because, after all, our overall market is 90 bees a day, and the LNG export part of it is 11. So, and in order to have the 11 go higher, it's very capital intensive. So, maybe in a few years it'll be 14 or 15. So. Uh, you know, it is not necessarily going to drag U.S. prices up. It's not a reason to go out and say, oh, my goodness, I have to have a third of my assets in the market in gas stocks. Please don't take that. But on the other hand, if you own one or two of them, or for that matter, one or two oil stocks, I think it's a good sign that, that you have this management discipline. Uh, in terms of overall market conditions, um, I think that that the trend is down to equity values for no particular reason other than a number of people are calling for a, a downtrend. And generally, uh, you know, you'd rather be a contrary thinker. Uh, and when they talk down, they're talking 10 or 15 or 20% down. Uh, I think that companies that uh, you want to own, uh, you do not want to sell to somehow feel like you can buy them back at a lower number. But if you have cash to invest, and you have a particular company that you like to own more of that you already own or something that that uh, new, like uh, you've always wanted to own NVIDIA and always seems too expensive, uh, probably better to wait on committing that cash and see what develops. Why is the trend down? Well, it's clear that there's way too much liquidity. Uh, the Federal Reserve has waited way too long to scale back its bond buying program, $120 billion a month, $40 billion of mortgage bonds, and $80 billion of uh, 
U.S. Treasury. They've waited way too long. It's irresponsible. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's clear that the U.S. government cannot run the deficits that they have been run. I mean, the pandemic is the reason, but I mean, it's time to get back uh, into, uh, you know, running, you know, uh, a trillion dollar deficit and try to move it down to six or seven hundred billion, not run a two trillion dollar deficit. And and I think the middle of the political spectrum, uh, Democrats from some of the more moderate Republicans uh, uh, will more or less cause that to happen. I think you, that's the process you see happening in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, in terms of events, it could be a surprise. Uh, hopefully, they'll flip through budget reconciliation, putting off the debt ceiling until uh, three or four months after the next Congress is seated. So that would be rather than increase the ceiling, what they do is they put it off, put it off till March or April uh, uh, 23. Uh, hopefully, the, the Mitch McConnell says no, none of the 50 Republican senators will vote for that. Hopefully, they could put that in some kind of reconciliation bill. And we won't get a situation where the two sides have a standoff and the Treasury says we don't have any more money, which Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, says will happen sometime uh, in early October. So then, uh, then the solution is to start furloughing federal employees. That's not good for anyone. Hopefully that won't happen. Uh, other things that might, you know, cause a, a, uh, down spike or that this prediction that the stock market go down 10, 15, 20%. Sometimes it's just the fact that the stock market's down becomes a fact in itself. And I, I, I just normally, normally, People aren't very good, including Mike and myself or anyone else, at trying to predict general market levels. But just at the present time, I'd be inclined to hang on to cash. And with that, I uh, want to swing over to Mike. Just to follow on, the two, comp- the two stocks mentioned last week, uh, I spent time on both of them. They both seem kind of interesting. Uh, uh, Mike will give you a little bit of follow-up. I have a little trouble with healthcare stocks. I do say think we have a structural deficit issue, and um, it, it, I don't see how you solve the revenue side of it without having a wealth tax. It, it surprises me, probably surprises anyone I mention this to, but I think if you had to raise more revenues, you have two choices. You have uh, a value-added tax, like a sales tax, very regressive. I don't think that's right. Uh, I don't think it – I think it really – is prejudiced against people who aren't very well off, living paycheck to paycheck. So I don't like value-added tax. A wealth tax, if you structure it properly, it went through, you know, it included foundations and endowments and had credits for local income tax so that New York and California and Illinois and whatnot weren't disadvantaged to Florida and Texas. I can see something like that. And that's, of course, the Elizabeth Warren plan. I don't think that's going to happen. The other thing, if you look at the expense side, the thing that sticks out is healthcare. We spend at least a trillion dollars more as a society than any other developed country does, and so it's a little hard. Whether it's GoodRx or uh, or Doc, DocNation or whatever, but I, I find them really interesting businesses. I, I'm fascinated with them. I think they're well managed. But personally, I just think that 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 effort to take uh, our spending on healthcare from 18 or 19% of our $22 trillion debt uh, uh, GMP 
down to 12%. It just has to happen. I mean, if it doesn't happen, it'll be very disappointing. So I think I'll just stay, stay clear of healthcare stocks. But over at Mike has some additional comments on those two. And then two additional stocks, which he found this effort to look at IPO companies that didn't need to come public to raise money just came public because that was better than selling. And Mike has two more. But let's go through the two from last week. Any additional comments Mike might have on the two from last week? Sure. So so from last week, we talked about GoodRx and Doxify or Doximity. Um, GoodRx, I, what I've been impressed with with the company is they started with a completely different product than what they have today. And they've been good at repositioning the company to adapt to uh, where they can play in the market. I ultimately think that their long-term success is not in the same uh, necessarily, not necessarily with these coupon products that they've they've got. I think at some point they'll face a lot of competition or at least pressures from the existing market um, to be eliminated. Um, but instead, I think they'll find another path. Now, that makes it very difficult for an investor to, to take a bet on something that doesn't necessarily exist yet. So I'm, I'll be watching from the sidelines, but I think it's, I think it's a fascinating company. I think they're good founders. Um, and I think the, the company has a good mission and they're trying to do something interesting in a space that is, that is unquestionably, uh, fraught with middlemen and, ex, uh, excess expenses. So, um, so we'll be rooting for them. Um, Doximity on the other hand, actually has a super interesting business model, a very captive, solid market. I think that the, the risk is, is that we come out of COVID and the pharmaceutical companies who are their main customers will shift back towards conventional methods of, um, of advertising. So they may see a slowdown in those revenues. It doesn't mean they'll shrink by any means, it may slow down. And when it slows down, that, that your growth rate highly affects the value of these growth businesses. So you have to think about where you want to enter. So, uh, and how much sustainable long-term growth there is. And, and I think that's the thing to, to call into question about uh, doximity. So I'll, I'll leave that there and, and we can move forward unless you have any more comments um, on those two hunt. No, no, no more, no more comments. And, uh, but I just want to congratulate Mike on uh, finding two a week. I mean, these are, these are really worthwhile companies to look at, and he's got two more. So hopefully we can keep up the pace because all the things we focused on uh, in the time we've been doing these calls, I think this is the, this is the, this is the technique to find interesting companies that have good cash flow characteristics and good balance sheets and, and uh and Mike, Mike keeps track of a list of companies and how much money's been made since they uh, came public. And, uh, you know, it's just remarkable if you can identify these companies at an early stage, maybe not on the IPO, but shortly thereafter, make an investment. I mean, uh, uh, the chance still is, is fast and all, but I mean, uh, all the, you know, Mike has a dozen other companies that are all very impressive. And, and the thing is, good companies, we have an expression in the oil and gas business that good fields get better. I think you could say from an investment point of view that good companies that are well-organized, that are well-managed, they have a significant competitive advantage, they get better. And my goodness, if you can just make 20% a year for a lot of years, it's amazing how the money piles up. I mean, that's the 
$9,000 in fastball over 30 years turns into like six or seven million dollars. So, but over, over to the next two. So we cover those today. At the rate Mike's going, we'll have two more next week. But over to you, Mike. All right. Thank you, Hunt. I have to give you credit for the, the idea and forcing me to talk about them each week is hopefully helping me be a little more articulate in um, explaining why I, I, what I like and what I'm looking at on, on each of these stocks. So the concept I want to talk about today is uh, the digitization of work. Um, and this has been a broader trend that I've been following in the market and ultimately some of our investments have, have benefited from, um, especially when the whole world went remote due to COVID-19. In the early days, enter- enterprise software was defined by the specific needs of pre-existing hierarchical organizations. In other words, it was kind of like a band-aid that was kind of placed into an existing system. Um, but today, software is actually enabling different organization designs and styles um, causing organizations to essentially be flatter, more distributed, and uh, enables us to, to come up with completely different business models. Example would be something like Airbnb that we looked at in the past. I mean, that, that company would not be feasible without, without software. And the way that it's run and managed has a lot to do with the software that that company has built. So today we're going to look at two companies that held IPOs in the last 12 months where their solutions fit in. The, they're both in the, the broad category of project management software. We'll also discuss project management methodologies because I think that's important to understand why the shift has taken place. And then we'll briefly touch on workflow management and workflow automation. These are all kind of integral to understanding the direction of the future of work. So before I start, I will, I'll give a little caveat here. People are really stuck and cling to their project management methodologies like like as if they're religion. So if I offend anybody by what I say on the phone, it's I'm just trying to give my best uh, best interpretation of a high level overview. So let's start with waterfall project management. Waterfall project management originated in construction and manufacturing. There are industries where one phase of a particular project generally must be completed before another begins. Waterfall projects are broken down into linear, linear and sequential stages. Um, and every piece of the project replies, uh, relies on the completion of an existing deliverable. Uh, I'll give a very simplified uh, example. So if you're building a house, you, can, you gener- generally cannot start roofing before the framing is complete. Um, now, you may be able to do electrical and plan- plumbing at the same time, but you can't have both guys working on the same room at the same time. Um, so all of that, the, the electrical and plumbing should also be done before drywall happens. So th- these are like very logical, physical um, dependencies that, that have to occur in order for a project to, to be completed. So as a result, waterfall project management requires thorough documentation of requirements before the project begins. Um, waterfall is a great methodology for well-defined projects with uh, especially when there's varying bandwidth requirements. Again, back to the building analogy, like you need a plumber for a certain part of a job, you need a roofer for a certain part of a job. So there's a bunch of specialties that you may only need for a small portion of the project. Microsoft Project is the software that still sort of dominates the waterfall project management software space, um, but there are plenty of others in uh, out there. Um, so the next broad category of software to, or of, uh, of project management methodologies I want to cover is agile. There are sub 
methodologies to agile, but agile kind of uh, captures a broad group of an alternative way to manage projects. Um, it's a agile is designed to be a collaborative, self-organizing, cross-functional approach. Um, unlike the linear nature of waterfall, agile focuses on adaptive, simultaneous workflows, um, and that is important because some types of projects need that sort of setup. So early software development projects that utilize waterfall approaches really struggled as the scale got larger and larger. And if you go back, you know, two decades, you'll find some information about companies that failed in releasing very large software projects. The Agile methodology is strong where waterfall is weak. So waterfall may require thorough documentation and Agile, Agile more focuses on releasing working product and then improving it over time. Uh, unlike, unlike waterfall where the, uh, the, the, your resources are sort of discrete and, and only needed for certain parts of the project. Most agile projects, you have a relatively static team and their skill sets are rather cross-functional and they stay on the project throughout the life of it. Um, one of the biggest downsides to agile is that it is actually quite difficult to estimate completion times for projects. So um, while this may be a problem, problem um, in some respects, it's also sort of a feature because, uh, again, Agile tends to be used in software projects where your, your completion of a release may just be an update that uh, is a minor feature or bug fix or something like that in a project. Okay, so, so let's talk about the software that's out there. I mean, you can manage projects, whether it's a waterfall project or, a soft, or an Agile project with pen and paper, but obviously there's software solutions out there. Um, Microsoft Project being the probably most um, visible waterfall tool, but there are a handful of others out there. Um, Atlassian is a company that's public. It's been public for almost six years now. They sort of led the way when it came to agile project management software. Their, their tool called Jira has been kind of the leading tool among developers for quite some time. Now, Hunt mentioned earlier, we've talked about these super compounders, these companies that have just done a fantastic job at compounding um, uh, investors' wealth since IPO. Atlassian is a good example. So since they IPO'd, uh, their, average, their IRR is averaged out at over 50%. Um, so obviously the, the COVID has been a, a sort of a, an accelerant to their business, but uh, the, the need for these tools continues to grow. Now, obviously um, with that comes more competition and there are quite a few new companies. Many are still private and some just recently IPO, which we'll talk about today. Asana is a project management software for businesses of all sizes. It's essentially gives you the tools to run agile projects, but it also has some features so that you could run a waterfall project as well. Um, what people really liked about Asana, and I've, I've run a company in the past where we used Asana, what people really liked about it is that the user interface was really nice, nicer than what Atlassian had. That being said, the company is growing very fast. Uh, it was a very successful IPO. I don't want to go too much more into DFL on them before we talk about Monday, since we have only five minutes left. So Monday.com is the other company that we'll cover today. Also IPO'd recently, actually just a few months ago. 
it also tracks and visualizes progress and all of the different tools that you need for agile project management. Um, but what Monday offers that's sort of a step beyond Asana is this concept of workflow management. So workflow management is the act of overseeing a process from start to finish where project management tends to cover unique, like we are a software development project, for example, or building a house. Workflow can be applied to closing your books for accounting every month. Um, accounting teams will utilize these tools so that managers have a level of oversight over what's happening within the system. So the nice thing about Monday is that when they go into a co company, their applicability in different parts of the business is larger. So they may do a land and expand model going into one area, but their opportunity to expand throughout the whole organization is uh, quite a bit better. Furthermore, the Monday.com has a bunch of integrations that make it easy to connect existing software systems to Monday. So this could be connecting QuickBooks. For example, if we go back to that accounting analogy, connecting QuickBooks to your Monday implementation or one of many other products such as your CRM or your marketing tools. So they're both SaaS companies. So Making a comparison is pretty straightforward. If you've been reading the weekly emails, both of them are, are covered on that chart that, uh, that shows the next 12 months revenue versus the um, enterprise value. Um, so from a, from a performance perspective, uh, they're both trading about a very similar multiple of uh, next 12 months revenue. Their uh, gross margins are in the 80, almost 90% range. Um, revenue growth, uh, next 12 months, looking at 69% and 41% for Monday and, and Asana, respectively. So these are growing very, very quickly. But the consequence of that is that it takes money to grow. And generally, with SaaS companies, they're pumping a ton of money into sales and marketing. And what they do is they go after accounts that generally organically go through free tiers of their product and end up in large organizations. And then they send their sales team after those organizations to say, hey, let's set up more. or We can help you set up more things within your organization. So you look at how much money uh, each company is spending as a percentage of revenue. Looking at trailing 12 months, Monday is spent 101% of trailing 12 months revenue on sales and marketing. So to say that it's burning cash would be an understatement. Now, the flip side is it's, it's, uh, it's payback period is, uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's under 12 months from what I remember. So they're getting a return inside of 12 months. And typically these customers stick around for many years. So they consider that a good investment. We're running out of time. So I want to pause here and give, uh, give Hunt a chance to give some feedback on what we just talked about. No, I, uh, I recommend, uh, if you haven't, uh, get on uh, Mike's email list. I'm looking at a chart that, uh, that has been compiled is next 12 months revenue growth versus next 12 months revenue multiple. And there's a way to evaluate these software as a service stocks. And I'm, I'm, reasonably uncomfortable with this. This is a step beyond uh, what I've been able to get myself used to. But 
it does give a really interesting um, way to look at these companies and uh, the uh, the the and I'm you know I'm I'm just going to have to get my head back into it. What I try to look at is historic cash flow and historic uh, free cash flow. In other words, cash flow after all capex. And while these companies have good balance sheets and and don't need to, as I say, don't need to go public to raise money, uh, they are with their marketing expense burning through most of their cash flow. What this attempt is take enterprise value, which is the value of the common stock plus any debt. Most of these companies don't have any debt, and relate that to the uh, revenue growth. And you know, I can see just from a, a review of some of these names, just the two we've gone through, but others that we're all familiar with. I mean, Snowflake for one. Uh, this this is definitely something that that uh, is worth. Uh, Getting getting on Mike's email list and getting a copy of this. And with that, uh, hopefully everyone uh, uh, stay healthy and stay well. Uh, at least in the Northeast, we have some great weather. And uh, any any time now, it's the middle of September. Any time you can spend on a sailboat is time well spent. Take care, everyone. Be well. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.